Again, my name is Baba Wesley Gray, calling you live, speaking to you live, rather, from uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, Sunday afternoon, actually in the evening. Right now it's about uh, 6.35 Eastern Standard Time, and this is March 13th, 2016. It's a pleasure speaking with you again, and we look forward to having shows every week. Uh, specifically on Sunday, and we're going to be adding additional days. I'm an interfaith minister, and um, my wife is also an interfaith minister, Dora Gray, and, and we're um, practitioners, we're Reiki practitioners and healers, as it were. Um, we're looking forward to sharing our knowledge with you and for you to share the knowledge with us that you have that can uh, each uh, allow us to each uh, one teach one and reach one to help each other to advance in our journey in this lifetime. Um, Dr. Uh, Stephen Ross, he uh, for the past 15 years has been both both a, uh, a devotee, of uh, a vegetarian, and an eloquent uh, advocate of the vegetarian ideal. His articles and books have appeared in several languages throughout the world, and he's also a frequent contributor to such publications as Vegetarian Times, uh, The Marinette, which is a quarterly uh, newspaper, Back to Godhead, a monthly magazine of the Vedic culture and spirituality, as well as um, within the West German community. Uh, he's been a philosophical journalist and uh, completing his studies at Hebrew and biblical literature in New York City. He's undertook several extensive hours of uh, Indian subcontinent exploration in terms of vegetarianism, and as an espoused um, advocate in the Eastern religion and culture, and most recently he has served as editor-in-chief for the Journal of Vedic Heritage and is a columnist, a columnist rather, within the indigenous or interreligious uh, journal, Isaiah 58. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Stephen Rawson uh, some 15 years ago, and uh, I've always been impressed with his information and uh, um, wealth of knowledge with regard to the vegetarian um, orientation. He states 
that uh, vegetarianism is his religion and um, uh, uh, his way of life, as it were. And I'd like to just elaborate on that, that um, my wife and I are vegetarians. I've been a vegetarian going on um, about 26, 27 years. My wife has been one now going on eight, maybe nine years. And um, it's been a very interesting journey. Uh, I'm 72 years of age, and I feel at times 15 to 20 years younger in terms of my mobility, my sense of well-being, and as well as um, the fact that indeed my hair, and uh, I haven't lost any hair. I still have muscle development, uh, which hasn't atopized uh, as much as my uh, contemporaries who seem to be not just out of shape, but also in a deteriorating mode because of diet. Um, I'm not saying that indeed one has to be a vegetarian in order to maintain a optimum state of health, health, but it does help, if you will, to be able to uh, regulate your your habits in terms of your dietary um, journey. So, what I'd like to do is share with you some of the nuggets of information that Stephen Rawson has in his book. And why don't we start at the beginning, at the introduction? Well, he says that each day thousands of human beings are born, and each day thousands die. And at times the world appears to be a little more than a vast ocean of birth and death. Animals, too, struggle to remain afloat, and although our activities in life may differ, our end is invariably the same in terms of mortality. Humans and animals are perfect equals. Human life does, of course, differ from other forms of life, and this is perhaps best expressed in the human quest for spiritual knowledge. Man's quest for God, regardless of the particular tradition, separates him from animals. It is doubtful that an animal will pick up this book, for instance, even for a cursory glance. Although religious Religions diverge on points of theology and ritual. They unanimously agree on the need for moral codes and ethical principles. Implicit in, in these codes and principles is the necessity of vegetarianism and compassion for animals. It is the purpose of this book to show that the world's major religious traditions and their earliest adherents were indeed sympathetic towards the meatless way of life and in many cases emphasize vegetarianism. The issue of vegetarianism and religion is itself overshadowed by religious hypocrisy, which preaches brotherhood and human slaughter in the same breath, while mercy and compassion are equally uh, espoused by all religionists and many non-religiousness. The world's major religions have done little to promote them, in terms of peace and respect for life. Indeed, we inflict violence and prejudice upon our human neighbors, even as we direct the same towards the animal world. Religion, in fact, seems to instigate violence rather than eliminate it. The examples are numerous, and for example, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the perennial fighting in Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants, 
the endless hostility between the Jews and their Muslim neighbors, the Hindu-slash-Muslim killings in post-war India, and the bloodshed between the Sikhs and the Hindus today. He also goes on to say, apparently, despite the spiritual mandate for mercy and compassion, many religions exclude not only animals from their scope, but human beings from other religious traditions as well. Something is amiss, he goes on to say. Ideally, ideally, religious temperament should run counter to intolerance. The qualities of love, mercy, and compassion, the avowed goals of all the major religion traditions as echoed and extolled and, and hate, violence, and prejudice are condemned. He goes on to say that while this is what religious preaches in theory, in practice this has rarely been the case. As noted, none of the history's bloodiest battles have been fought on religious grounds, he goes on to say. While this in and of itself does not invalidate organized religion, it, it makes us question how effectively religious institutions practice what they preach. If those who implement religion, the leaders, the philosophers, the theologians, and avowed adherents are confused about the treatment of people from other religious traditions, could they then not also be confused about the treatment of animals, he goes on to say. So that's an interesting piece there in terms of how we treat animals. I, I, I might just uh, divert my attention from uh, reviewing the book, uh, Food for the Spirit, but just go, go, I would like to say that as an African-American elder, Mel, uh, that I'm a little bit uh, uh, annoyed with the fact that many people who look at those of us who practice vegetarianism and who are vegans and, and even those who are still meat eaters but uh, regulate our meat eating uh, to a minimum, that uh, a lot of people in our community of African descent, people of African descent, tend to uh, argue and if not ridicule those of us who are attempting to change our eating habits so that they are more more wholesome and more more holistic, as it were. Um, indeed, as an elder, it is our obligation to pass on that knowledge that we've learned through our uh, journey in life to the younger generation, so that indeed they won't have to suffer and have as much of a difficult journey as we have in terms of just basic needs. So that leads me to, to, to quote an article that was written in the Amsterdam News by Dr. Gerald Dees. Um, he states that the title of the article is Don't Become a Meathead by Eating Too Much Meat. I find that to be a very interesting uh, uh, title. Of course, it's attention-grabbing, and one has to say, well, hmm, well what's, you know, what is Dr. Dees talking about? Well, let me just share this with you, if I can quote, unquote, uh, 
an excerpt from his article. He states that the average person in America and across the world consumes the flesh of at least 100 million animals a year to satisfy their taste for meat. The average American eats approximately 220 pounds of meat yearly. And he goes on to state that just think of how many fat-laden hamburgers are sold to satisfy our taste buds. Hamburgers now have invaded the shores of Asia and Africa. Folks in those parts of the world are just licking up those calories and experiencing the, the obesity that is found in America. Soon they will experience the same epidemic of disease that we are experiencing. We meat-eating Americans have the highest rates of breast, colon, and prostate cancer, and we are second to none in experiencing diabetes, heart disease, elevated blood pressure, and renal failure. And don't forget, he states, meat is tasteless until it is drenched with salt and salty condiments to satisfy the taste buds. The excess salt is related to hypertension and heart disease and renal failure. It takes tons and tons of grain to fatten up farm animals that are then sacrificed to our love for meat, uh, to our love of meat. The condemned animals are also the cause of contaminating the earth with waste material as well as the atmosphere with methane gas and it is a no-win situation. What is the answer, he states? Increased consumption of veggies and fruits, fresh fruits will ensure a longer stay on this planet before meeting one's maker. We now are known as a nation of guts and butts, which encourages the building of more hospitals and emergency rooms to treat meat-related diseases. The Mediterranean diet, which consists of grains, fresh vegetables, and water, would promote a satisfying and healthier lifestyle. It is suggested that we can improve and supplement our diets by having a meatless day three times weekly, along with substituting water for those tasty sugar-laden drinks and Cokes and colas. I'm sure after reading this column that you'll no longer be considered to be you will no longer be considered to be a meathead and will enjoy a healthy and productive life. End of article quote. Hi hon, how are you? Hello. My let's uh my wife just stepped into the studio and I'd like to uh indeed invite her in on the show. Um hi honey, this is uh, my wife Dora, Doctor Dora Gray. Hello, everyone. Alafia. I'm glad to be here. I, I know I showed up very late to the show, but it could not be avoided. And greetings to those of you on the phone line. Greetings to those of you who are listening from your computers. You know, I, I walked in to hear you saying something very interesting, Baba, because we an interesting because if you. Well, you probably do recall, you and I were talking about that just this morning. Yes, yes, yes. And I believe last, week before last, when Dr. Paul was on the show, Mm -hmm. he also mentioned the Mediterranean diet. Wow. Do you remember that? No, I forgot about that. Yeah, he mentioned the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. And uh, from my personal 
experience. I have to agree. I don't I don't know who the author is of the book that you're reading or the article because I showed up late. Steve Rawson. Steve Rawson, okay. So um I have to agree with Steve Rawson because uh since I've eliminated meat from my diet, my health has improved greatly. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not here to speak as a medical doctor. Those of you who know me know that I'm a doctor of letters. I'm a doctor of philosophical theology. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a medical doctor. If you want to discuss um, medical issues, then give Dr. Chris Saltpaw a call because he is very versed in just, I'll put it to you this way, I have not seen him stumble over any questions dealing with health. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest that if you have a health question, give him a call and we'll make his phone number available yes. sometime during this broadcast. So I'm speaking from personal experience. I'm speaking from what they would call empirical data because I've tested these things myself. From consuming a meatless diet, I have improved energy. It's interesting. My my sleep habits have improved. Even though I have an incredible amount of energy during the day, when it's time for me to go to sleep, I put my head down on the pillow, and it's probably less than two minutes, and I'm fast asleep. I, I don't even know. All I remember is putting my head down on the pillow at night, and, and that's it, and I wake up refreshed in the morning. I have to attribute that to my diet because that wasn't always so. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, so the best I can say, you know, what, what can I say? That is my empirical data. Mm-hmm. I've tested it. It's true. Um, am I hungry? No, I eat a lot of food. Because many people, you know, they question that, or, oh, will I be hungry? Am I going to have to eat, you know, bird food all the time? I assure you, we do not eat bird food. We eat um, soy protein. Oh, we eat just about any type of vegetable that we want that we can think of. Um, potatoes and we have veggie burgers and we have vegetable lasagna. I love lasagna. I never gave it up. It's just that we we prepare our own meatless lasagna. Anything you could think of, and of course the desserts. We you know we bake our own desserts. We create our own desserts. We make our own ice cream. So we we really come away. Wouldn't you say we've come away, Baba, from? anything that has preservatives. I even make our own salad dressing. Amazing. I'm so impressed. And so, so <laughs> yeah, quite a treat. And we're looking forward to uh, uh, learning how to make everything that there is to, to make that we eat on an ongoing basis to make it ourselves. And I'm so happy that you opened up the, uh, the, the uh, portals of that. Well, based on based on the excerpt that you were reading, you know that's that's what I feel has come across the table to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pun intended. Come across the table. Right. No pun intended, <laughs> but that, that's what mm-hmm. um, you know. That's what's uh, appeared for this evening. Mm-hmm. Um, people 
comments all the time to me. And I say this with humility. I'm not bragging, but I'm just making a point because, again, it wasn't always so. Mm -hmm. So it's just important that our listeners understand that when I describe personal experiences, it's because if you're interested in improving your health, Bob and I can help you. Now, we make a disclaimer. We make no diagnoses. We're not providing any treatment or recommendations, but what we're doing is sharing information of what we do and what we've done to improve our our health, mind, body, and spirit, and we want to share that with you. And we're glad to share it with you. So, you know, give us a call, send an email, and uh, if you're interested, and we will be glad to share that information with you. Baba had a one-on-one today with someone who came to him to talk about diabetes. And again, we don't make any recommendations, diagnoses. We're not going to give you a treatment plan. Mm -hmm. I'm a former diabetic, so when I talk about diabetes, it's near and dear to my heart because I overcame it, and I was someone who used to use insulin as well as oral medication. Mm -hmm. So I will be speaking to you from my personal experience, what I've done, what I continue doing, what I eat, type of exercise I might do, what, whatever, whatever I can share with you from my personal experience, being that it worked, I'm glad to share it with you. So that's what we do. We're not medical doctors, but we do have a very um, reputable doctor whom we can refer you to if you need one. Absolutely. Or, or if you feel that it's time for a change, whatever whatever the situation mm-hmm. may be. And, uh, you know, we're glad to do that. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, we we are so uh, blessed to be able to share that whatever knowledge that we have with those of you who tune into our show. Um, and we're so blessed to be able to be traveling in the same circles of people who uh, are of like minds. And that's one of the first things that we could recommend to you is that uh, those of you who are in search of maximizing and optimizing your health, it behooves you to consider this regulating or or making your circle along with people who have the same goals in mind, especially in terms of health, Uh, those people who are actually practicing, not those who are pontificating and, and trying to make an impression, but those who, you know who they are, who really actually are walking the talk, you know, and and and, um, and, and once you circulate, circulate yourself uh, amongst those people, you find yourself, even if it's just through osmosis, picking up information that can be, you know, uh, beneficial towards your journey in, in terms of maximizing your health. Um, let's take a pause. I, I have a number that my wife would like to share with you uh, regarding Dr. Saltpaw. Honey, would you? So Dr. Christopher Saltpaw, his last name is spelled S-A-L-T-P-A-W, and he's a doctor of natural medicine, and he can be reached at 917-837-6700. And I'll just repeat his telephone number, 917-837-6722. Great. And if you call him, just mention that Baba and Dr. Dora referred you. 
Yes. That you heard about him through um, Bob's broadcast. Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, sure. we, we thank uh, Dr. Chris Sopal for making his services uh, available. Uh, at this point, what I'd like to do is uh, share with you some of the things that my wife and I have been practicing. As I mentioned earlier in the show, that uh, we both are vegetarians. I've been a vegetarian for over uh, 25, 26 years. And, honey, is this your, going to your ninth or eighth year? What is it? Well, it's my ninth going on tenth year, and I have to qualify that, though, um, of being a strict vegetarian because I had, you know, continuously, because I tried vegetarianism, as you know, Baba, um, a few times in the past, mm -hmm. maybe for like a year at a time, six months here, a year there, but I've actually stuck with it now mm -hmm. for nine years. Oh, yes. Great, great. And and we've noticed a marked difference in, in how we feel, right? And how we think. How we feel, how we look. How we look. We get mind, body, spirit. Mm, yes, indeed. Mind, body, spirit. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, um, I was. I had a guess... I, my wife was mentioning uh, earlier this afternoon, and uh, we were talking about uh, uh, illusions, as it were. A lot of us are not aware, don't embrace the concept that we're actually spiritual beings having a human experience. But uh, depending on your orientation, religious orientation or spiritual growth, as it were, one has to be mindful that indeed I consider my body to be a temple you know, a housing of my spirit, of my soul. And, of course, you want to do your best to maximize in, in the health of your body and upkeep of, of that health by practicing certain things, such as, you know, correct diet. And one of the major uh, elements of, of uh, how you keep your body healthy is the consumption of water. And maybe we can just touch upon that, time in terms of... Uh, what we've incorporated in our family and our home. And so we know that our body is comprised of approximately 75% water. Mm -hmm. um, there are various schools of thought, but the a general consensus is that we should consume on a daily basis half your body weight in ounces of water. And when we say water, we don't mean liquid. We mean pure water with no sugar in it, no tea, no no nothing, plain water. So, for instance, um, let's just say someone weighs 100 pounds. So half their body weight would be 50, right? 50 ounces of water a day. That's the way that you figure it out. Whatever you weigh, take half of that, and drink that in ounces of pure, clean water mm -hmm. a day. Mm -hmm. There's controversy over distilled water versus tap water versus alkaline water versus spring water, and we're not going to get into all of that right. at this moment. Mm -hmm. But a key is if you're not consuming at least half your body weight in ounces of water daily, possibility is you might be dehydrated. Now, here's an easy way to tell if you need to drink more, wa more water. Many times we might feel that we're hungry, mm. 
but we're actually thirsty. Mm. So sometimes if you feel like you're really hungry and, and hungry with no reason because you've had breakfast or lunch or whatever meal you were having, but, you, you know, but you're really hungry, you might not be hungry. You might just be thirsty. That's a good point. You might be dehydrated. And um, my husband is a, uh, he talks about it all the time, he's a marathon runner. And in the running community, he's learned that by the time you're really thirsty, you should have had water, you know, previously. Absolutely. Like, don't wait until you're real thirsty and then you're going to gulp down water. That means you've waited too long. So intermittently during the day, you should be drinking your 50 ounces of, uh, not 50 ounces, I'm sorry, I'm using my example, <laughs> your half your body weight in ounces of right. water per day. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a practice that my husband and I are into where, um, honey, you want to tell them about our morning routine with the water? Yes, yes. Um, we uh, recently, when I say recently, that's uh, relative, within the last, I think, about four or five months, we started drinking uh, 24 ounces of water uh, first thing in the morning. And the water is not, uh, it's actually warm water, almost hot water. As warm as you can take it. As warm as you can take it comfortably. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do this before we brush our teeth because once you brush brush your teeth, the body reacts as if it's now had something to eat. It, It treats it as food. And what you want to do is to uh, hydrate your body uh, as much as possible so that, indeed, all the toxins that have been accumulated can be flushed out. Uh, Normally, most of you might know that you should have at least one bowel movement per meal that you eat per day. And most of us, of course, eat three meals a day at least. Um, That's your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, when you go to bed at night, you're uh, going to bed with uh, the remnants, uh, the remains of your dinner inside of your body. And uh, of course, when you're at, at sleep, you're in a fasting state and your body is processing the food and uh, also processing any uh, waste and toxins, rather, that are within your body. So the whole concept of drinking the water first thing in the morning of 24 ounces is like providing your body with the flush, being able to actually flush out the toxins uh, through through their urine that you that you expel, and then of course to maximize the uh, cleanliness of of your intestines and the blood and and all your major organs that are within your body. Uh, you wanted to share something, honey? Did you? Oh well, I was just going to mention because sometimes I like to mention the source of this information mm-hmm. because this information um, is not something that my husband and I experimented with and came up with a, a program about mm-hmm. the drinking water. This is something that I learned from an audio course that was put out by an organization called the Health Maintenance Institute, but they're no longer in business, but this is where we're getting that information from. So, you know, so when we when, when we talk about things, um, these are things that have been tested. 
things that have been written about. It's, it's not something that we made up. If I come up with my own concept, I'll let you know. Yes. Okay, yes, that's, yes. that's the easiest way to do it. When I come up with something that I truly researched and put together myself, I will definitely let you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are, you know, sometimes I do like to mention the source of the information that we're sharing. Because, again, this is, you know, the Internet, the Internet, when it came out some time ago, I know they were calling it um, information superhighway. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. It's like you can get all of this information. And, you know, we, we look at several sources and we compare to see if the sources are basically talking about the same thing. And uh, I use myself as an example because I'll try a protocol. Like, for instance, I, I participated in a protocol that was created to help lower your blood sugar. Mm. And I've, I've actually participated in a few uh, different programs where they gave protocols to help you reduce blood sugar. And some of them work very well. Some of them you know, work marginally well, but the point that I'm making is whatever, if, if you call me or send an email and you want to talk about diabetes, the information I'm giving you has been tested. I just, mm -hmm. that's, I'm, that's basically the point that I'm making. Yeah. And if, if they would like to call you, what number can they reach you at? 888-449-0413. I'll repeat that. 888-449-0413. 0413. And if you'd like to call me, uh, that number is 888-338-2508. Again, that's 888-338-2508. And my website is www.drumsofchange.com. Again, that's drumsofchange.com. And at my site, we offer... Uh, the opportunity for you to purchase a drum, as a matter of fact, which you can get a drum uh, anywhere from starting at $29 up to $200 or more for drums that are made and crafted in Africa, mainly West Africa. And um, there's a guarantee, as it were, if they are not uh, in good shape, damaged, whatever, there's a return policy. Some of them also have shipping costs included. So, again, I implore you, as well as drums, you can purchase books uh, that we review, such as the book that I'm reviewing this evening, and that's Food for the Spirit by Stephen Rosen. That's Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, Rosen, R-O-S-E-N, either Rosen or Rosen, R-O-S-E-N. So, uh, for now, we're going to take a short break, and we will be back with you momentarily.
great. We're back. And again, you're listening to Grassroots Holistic Talk Radio Show with Barbara Wesley Gray speaking to you live. And for those of you who are listening, if you'd like to call in to share your thoughts and comments, please, um, actually, if you want, if you're listening, of course, um, you can press the number one button on your phone and that will indicate that you're raising your hand and you'd like to contribute uh, some thoughts and comments to the show. Um, and uh, we ask you also to spread the word. There's nothing uh, more effective than word of mouth in terms of uh, uh, spreading the word about shows such as this. And we look forward to uh, being with you every week, uh, at least every Sunday evening and then some days even during the week. Let's let's get back to uh, uh, Stephen Rawson's uh, Food for the Spirit. Uh, while sex limits are evident today, either earlier forms of religion had a different story to tell. In fact, the further back we go in religious history, the more respect we find for life in all its forms. Quite naturally, vegetarianism played a part in this respect for all life which includes Islam, for instance, the youngest of the world's major religions, originated 1,300 years ago, and is not a strong supporter of vegetarianism ideal. Christianity, which is 2,000 years old, offers a bit more evidence for the, the particular practicality of a meatless way of life. And Judaism, which is about 4,000 years old, has a large tradition of vegetarianism, one of the most ancient religions known, Hinduism is a strong supporter of the vegetarian principles. Buddhism and Jainism, while only some 2,500 years old, are essentially Hindu uh, hetero heterodoxies and so fully share the vegetarian principles upheld by their parent religions, often to a much greater degree. There are, however, many exceptions to this rule, and that being some modern denominations do indeed propagate vegetarianism. The Seventh-day Adventists, Quakers, and Mormons, for example, have a meatless contingent. And while the Sufis are an exception among the Muslims, the Bahi faith also endorses vegetarianism. Although meat products are not strictly forbidden, these are their exceptions. However, and in general, the above rule holds true. The older the religion, the closer to vegetarianism. So, now, to many, the fact that the more ancient religions, traditions uphold the vegetarian ideal is proof that vegetarianism is a dated concept, a primitive ideal maintained by superstition or ignorance. To others, the antiquity of uh, vegetarianism stands as a major indication of its primacy, primacy in religious thought. Before the purity of faith and the doctrine was subjected to later revisions and interpretations and accommodations. The earliest forms of religious expression fully accept vegetarianism, if not always in practice, then at least in the spiritual principle. Scriptures here defined as those literary works on which religion was originally founded, 
as opposed to later interpretive writings. Any explanation of scriptural teachings, including my own, is in one sense imperative. However, since scriptures are held sacred by their respective followers, they should be understood as they are originally intended. So this book, therefore, endeavors to remain as close to original intent as possible by referring to primary sources and literal translations. One may also compare and verify, for example, all Bible passages throughout this work by referring to Reuben Alcalay's complete Hebrew-English dictionary for the Old Testament and the Nestle's Interliner Greek-English New, Trans, New Testament. Of course, most people do not read their scriptures this, this way. The tendency is for believers to accept whatever addition or translation or original scripture their church happens to favor at any particular time. And most such popular editions are not translated rigorously or with the view towards understanding the original meaning of the text. The philosophical and theological problem with this, however, is considerable. The value of unaltered scripture is analogous to that of the computer instructions manual. It goes without saying that such a complicated apparatus as a computer needs an instruction booklet for proper operation. In the complex universe we inhabit, scriptures act like instruction manuals, guiding us through the intricacies of universal law and function. Further, with a man-made instruction manual may be imperfect, and subject to revision, God's laws books, by definition, are absolute and eternal, with few differences according to time, place, and circumstance. Therefore, if it can be shown that the original intent of the world's major religious scriptures was to encourage a meatless diet, then this book contends that any person who even nominally claims to adhere to a particular faith cannot morally justify a non-vegetarian diet. Now, he goes on to state that there's a scientific perspective, and that scientific perspective uh, states that before any discussion of the religious and moral rationale for vegetarianism, an examination of the scientific reasons for avoiding flesh as a food source should be given, as I mentioned uh, the article from Dr. Gerald Dees earlier in the program. He goes on to state that modern medicine offers ample evidence of the dangers of meat eating. Cancer and heart disease are nearly epidemic in nations with high per capita consumption of meat. While they rarely occur in societies where little meat is consumed, there is also a considerable scientific evidence that the teeth, jaws, and the long convoluted intestinal canal, canal in humans are not naturally suited to a diet containing meat. The value of this evidence in the present context is that vegetarianism is purely abstract or philosophical grounds rarely last. Without an awareness of this dietary fact, even the most ardent religionists are apt to adopt a meat-oriented diet. On the other hand, however, it would be incomplete 
to appear to a meatless diet without understanding the deeper meaning for humanity. So let us briefly outline in the remaining portion of the introduction a few of the secular practical reasons for the vegetarian way of life. The protein myth. The fear of protein deficiency is why many people never adopt a vegetarian diet. Can one get enough quality protein and all one needs from a non-meat diet, they ask? Before answering this, the question that is, let us first define protein. In 1838, a Dutch chemist, Gerrit Jan Mudler, isolated a substance containing nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and other trace elements. He showed this chemical compound to the basis of all life. He, he, he maintained that this was the fact. And he named it protein. This is going back to 1838, mind you, those who are listening audience. And that was by the Dutch chemist. Gerrit, that's G-E-R-R-I-T, Jan, J-A-N, Mulder, M-U-L-D-E-R. So he's known for being able to isolate the substance containing nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and other trace minerals. And he named this, um, this element protein, meaning first rank. That's the definition of protein, first rank. It has been subsequently proven that protein is biologically essential. Every living organism must ingest a certain amount of it to survive. This, it was found, is due to the fact that proteins are composed of amino acids, which are the building blocks of life. Plants can synthesize amino acids from air, earth, and water. But animals are dependent on plants for protein, either directly by eating plants or indirectly by eating an animal that has eaten and metabolized plants. Only the vegetable kingdom is capable of producing protein. Thus, humans have the option of obtaining it directly and with great efficiency from plants or indirectly and at great expense, both financially and in terms of resources consumed from animal flesh. It goes on to state that one reason for the latter's highest cost is that the animal has been forced to eat a tremendous amount of vegetable proteins in order to reach slaughter weight. There are thus no amino acids in flesh that animals do not derive from plants that humans cannot also derive from plants. And moreover, he states, eating foods from the plant kingdom has the added advantage of combining amino acids with other substances that are essential to the proper utilization of protein, that being carbohydrates, vitamins, minerals, enzymes, hormones, chlorophyll, and other elements that only plants can supply. Vegetarians should also know, however, of the theory of food combining, which some scholars say is essential if one wishes to obtain complete proteins. This concept, better known as protein complementary, 
was popularized by Francis Moore Lappy. That's Francis, F-R-A-N-C-E-S Moore, M-O-O-R-E, Lappe, L-A-P-P hyphen E. In her best-selling book, Diet for the Small Planet, where she explains that complementary proteins are usually put together as a matter of course in a balanced vegetarian diet. So if we eat peanut butter, for example, we smear it on some bread, preferably whole wheat bread. And this is how we generally eat peanut butter. If we use whole grain bread, we would have a generous amount of protein. And if she goes in a state, here's how it works. When we eat, the body breaks the protein down into its constitutional constituent amino acids. These are either utilized individually or reassembled into new protein needs for, by the body. There are 22 known amino acids. 14 are non-essential and 8 are essential. Essential here, supply means that we cannot manufacture them naturally within the body and must get them from our food. The essential amino acids are leucine, isoleucine, valine, lysine, typophine, theranine, methylenine, and phenylalanine. All these must appear according to LAPI. At any given meal, in the right proportions to have a well-balanced diet, for this reason, up to the mid-1950s, meat was considered an excellent source of protein. It has all of the eight essential amino acids in the proper proportions. Non-nutritionist theories now argue that many vegetarian foods are equal to, if not better than, meat in terms of protein content for these foods contain all eight amino acids as well. In general, the rule for producing high-protein vegetarian dishes is to combine grains, that being breads, pastics, etc., with legumes, and that can include soybeans, lentils, peanuts, and so forth. And at the same meal, as is done with the previous mentioned peanut butter sandwich, Nuts and seeds combined with legumes, or even with, uh, combined with cereals, which can also provide a high-protein diet. And if milk, milk products are included in the diet, there's even less chance of a protein problem deficiency. For milk also contains all the essential amino acids. It has also been determined that many green leafy vegetables and even potatoes have a considerable amount of complete, complete protein. And along with that, including an eight ounce glass of carrot juice has the same quality and amount of protein as an egg. Now I wanna back up for a minute because my wife and I, we, we drink uh, almond milk. Uh, we even just recently came across a brand which is almond and coconut. Um, combined into a milk form. And it's very high in content in, in terms of protein. And um, 
We also are we regulate ourselves to just drinking um, whole grain and and pasta, and brown rice and pasta that is uh, whole grain, as it were. We try to stay away from anything that that has a white um, a white color to it, as it were. We don't drink white potatoes. We drink, I mean, we don't eat white potatoes. We eat uh, red potatoes and even uh, sweet potatoes is a main part of our diet. So in the next show, I'm going to share with you uh, our diet that we found to be very healthy. And and I must uh, preface this, uh, should I say, give a disclaimer, as it were, by saying that anything that we say on the show and suggest that it's not for healing purposes uh, necessarily, and we advise that you consult your doctor uh, before you imbibe or indulge in any of our uh, practices. We're not doctors. We're not medical doctors. We're medical researchers, and we just look forward to just sharing our knowledge with you on whatever level that we can that can be of benefit to you if you decide to indulge. We just all always invites that you do your due diligence. So our show is coming to an end, and I do thank you for tuning in. Uh, and as always, uh, we give a homage and give thanks to our ancestors, to the one most high God, and um, we give thanks to you for tuning in. So I bid thee farewell for this evening. I, I pray that uh, your week is uh, a joyful one and productive and healthy one. So namaste, uh, peace and love, assalamu alaikum, shalom, hepatu. We will talk again next week. Peace and blessings.